welcome everybody back into Down the Line. As always, I'm your host, Carson Breber, and today we're going to start things off by taking a look back at what was one of the more chaotic Masters 1000s in recent memory, and that is obviously what just concluded in Miami. Now, it's definitely a bummer that Miami won't be accompanied by Indian Wells this year. Obviously, normally we have those two going hand in hand, and Indian Wells is a tournament that I love very much. It's a tournament I've been to many times and always brings out the best in tennis. But we still got some great tennis in Miami, even though we were without many of the top players in the sport. As I touched on ahead of last week's show, we were without Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, Dominic Team, four of the top five players in tennis, and obviously the three greatest players in the history of the sport. And what did we get out of that? What did we get out of their absences? We got a crazy champion in Mr. Herkosh, who was seeded 26th, ranked 37th in the world at the beginning of the tournament, and then he won the whole thing, beating Yannick Sinner in the final. It was obviously his first Masters 1000 title, his second title of the year, but very different from his first one in Delray Beach, where he didn't face a top 100 guy in route turning that trophy. He had an incredibly difficult run here, and he is now deservedly up at world number 16. Now, Herkosh has been a real quality player for a few years, He's been pretty consistently performing well. This was a different level, though. And if you look at the guys he beat, as I mentioned, it's just absurd. Beat Shapovalov, Raonic, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Sinner. A few of those guys, by the way, who are still looking for their first Masters 1000 in their own right and obviously are among the most talented players in the sport, period. And what was so remarkable is he got through this stretch with some absurd clutch tennis. Going back to that first match against Shapovalov, grinds out the second set tiebreak, 10-8. That's some big-time tennis. Got a big return in, followed it up with a big serve, and closed out in a strong way there against, obviously, a talented, phenomenal player. Versus Raonic, lost the first set, comes back from that, wins the third set tiebreak. Again, incredibly clutch tennis in the biggest moments. Then against Tsitsipas, down a set and a break. He's facing Deuce to possibly go down two breaks in that second set, and he digs out a crazy shot off of a really nice drop volley from Tsitsipas, angles the ball off ridiculously, and you can't just key in on one point and say that's representative of everything, but man, was that clutch tennis when he needed it most, and then he kind of cruised through the rest of the set, and then in the final versus Sinner. Sinner was serving for the first set up 6-5, Herkosh broke, came back, won the tiebreak. So, he just repeatedly played that clutch, consistent tennis, and it was really remarkable. He returned well, he defended well, he also attacked well, was controlled and aggressive from both sides, really solid from both the forehand and the backhand throughout the tournament, and it's just a wild run, and I think that as exciting as this is for Herkosh, it's not necessarily indicative of some sort of long-term breakthrough, but I do want to contextualize this historically because it is significant. It is the wildest 1,000 winner in a long time. I think the only really recent contender would be Jack Sock at Paris back in 2017. Interestingly enough, there was also no Djokovic, no Fed, no Stan Wawrinka in that tournament. Those were three of the top four players in the world. There was no Raonic, no Nishikori, no Burdick. Obviously, all guys in that next tier of contenders to pick up a 1,000 title. And even Rafa Nadal, the top seed in the tournament who was available, also lost by walkover ahead of the quarters. Andy Murray was not in the picture at this point. He wasn't there. So obviously, all the traditional contenders out of the picture. And the top-ranked guy that Sock beat was 17-seeded Puyil, who was the only seed he actually faced. So he was the favorite, basically, in every match. He ended up beating Krajinovic in the final, who was a qualifier at that point. So that's a crazy one as well, but even Sok, I would say, was in some ways more established, would reach a higher peak than what we've seen from Rakash thus far, obviously getting as high as world number eight, and didn't have nearly as impressive of a path, so I'm inclined to say it's not quite as wild because it's just not as memorable. There weren't as many incredible moments, as many signature wins, and then if you go back before then, you're going back a long time. I guess the one you could argue after Sok 
was Isner in Miami of 2018. Personally, I don't think it qualifies, though. Isner was a top 10 guy for many chunks of the past decade, so it's not all that shocking when he wins a big tournament on hard. Definitely surprising, but not as surprising as Sarkash here, I would say. But before Sock, I think you go back to Felix Mantia in 2003, who was unseated, won the Italian Open, beating Nalbandian, Fish, Costa, Lubacic, Kafalnikov, Federer, really an absurd run from him, and never reached that level again in his career, certainly. So that one's crazier than this, but outside of that, I don't think there's another one on this level of just mayhem and surprisingness. So, as I said, does this mean that Rakash is breaking through at 24 years old? No, I don't think so, but he is really good, and I think that he is definitely in store for a strong year and a strong career, and is a guy who is certainly going to be a figure who is relevant on tour for some time. I also will point out, he's 7-10 all-time versus top 10 guys. Now, two of those wins just came here in Miami, but even being 5-10 and 10 before that is impressive enough, so a bit of a giant slayer resume being established for him, and it'll be fun to see how he does in the slams. He lost first round in the Australian in five. I don't expect that to happen down the road with these other three slams. I think he makes a little bit of noise, and that'll be fun to see, but it's crazy. He's now accomplished something that Tsitsipas and Rublev still haven't, obviously, firmly among the top eight players in the world and have been playing at a level even higher than that, certainly in the case of Rublev. Obviously, Shapovalov hasn't done it yet. And so, just pretty remarkable. And I will say, although another man who we beat in his path to get there also hasn't done it, you really can't expect him to at 19 years old. And that is Yannick Sinner finishing as the runner-up. And I just think he's arrived. And if it wasn't clear that he's arrived before this, it certainly is clear now. At 19, he's up to number 23 in the world. He's 27-8 and eight since the start of the French Open last year, which is ridiculous, with two titles, a slam quarterfinal and a Masters 1000 final in that stretch. He's 19, and of course, that makes him the youngest Masters 1000 finalist since Rafa in 2005. Younger than Djokovic, younger than Murray, younger than Zverev team, whatever wonder boy you want to pick out, he has now done something that they had not done at that age. And look, obviously... He has shown this talent time and again, and this is not an exception, although it's one of the more impressive feats of his career, if not the most impressive, honestly, up to this point. But I've been saying he's a top five lock down the road. He's a future world number one. I said before the year he'd finish in the world's top 15, and it's only a matter of time until he gets there, and I think until he accomplishes everything that we've laid out. And I'm not going to do a full Yannick Sinner breakdown because I've done that so many times over, but... Again, you just see the power standing out, and I credit Hercosh for handling it pretty well when Sinner is just slapping balls at him, but his path may not have been as tough as Hercosh, but still had to beat Kachanov and RBA, came back from losing the first set in both. Really mentally tough stuff. To beat a couple of veterans on tour like that in such a big match when you're facing a deficit, playing his best tennis, and he is just a star. He is a star in the making, and that making is happening very quickly. He is going to be beating the top guys regularly soon enough, and I just think it's remarkable. We have this really great generation of next young guys, the next next gen, if you will, and I talk about them so much, but Sinner right now is probably the best of them. You can debate him versus Shapovalov, who's more naturally talented, probably Shapovalov, but who has put it together more at this point? Sinner is on a stretch right now that is better than anything Shapovalov has done, and that's with Dennis having a couple years on him. So I think that kind of tells you what you need to know right there, and there's still room for growth for both of them, of course. But Sinner is just a lock to be a great in this sport over the next decade, in my opinion. Speaking of locks to be great over the next decade in this sport, on the women's side, we had some fun stuff as well. And to me, my favorite storyline far and away was the real return of Bianca Andreescu. Now, obviously, she's been back this year, but hasn't fully looked like herself. 
She makes a run to the finals here in Miami, has some really good wins, four straight three-setters that she gutted out against Anisimova, which I talked about a bit on last week's show, a phenomenal match. Then Muguruza, who I thought ahead of the tournament would maybe beat her, such a phenomenal player on hard, really on any surface, actually, Muguruza, but then she beats Soribas Tormo, then she beats Sakari, just phenomenal clutch play throughout, and particularly versus Sakari, who obviously is a great player who I think very highly of, but she's down 6-5 in the first set with Sakari serving, she breaks, she wins the tiebreak 9-7, that's clutch stuff, and I think her game looks great, it's awesome to see her back like herself, she obviously had such an incredible burst onto the tour back in 2019, and she still withdrew against Barty in the final down 6-3-4 love, so she's clearly not 100%, and she definitely was hurt. I also think she probably was physically well enough to finish if she had had an incentive to, but when you're down that deep, and I imagine just a really exhausting week because of, first of all, the fact that you're playing in a bubble, which is enough of a burden in and of itself, but then you're injured, you're grinding out four consecutive three setters. She clearly was just kind of done by the end of it, and she was crying a little bit at the end of that match, and Barty was very generous and being apologetic that it had to end that way, but obviously Barty's a deserved champion. She was punishing. She was just surgical throughout this match, so credit to her, no question, but it's great to see Andreescu out there looking something like herself. I am so bullish on her. I still, honestly, gun to my head, would take her over the next decade ahead of Osaka. I think her variety and pace is on just a different level, and her ability to slap the ball is really up there with Osaka as well. So, I'm a huge Andreescu fan. That is well established. Picked her to finish the year world number one. That's probably not going to happen, but she was playing at a really high level here in Miami. Now, I do want to talk about the person who was opposite the net, and ended up beating her convincingly and is the world number one right now. And that is Ash Barty because I probably don't talk about Ash Barty enough. And she is just the pinnacle of consistency in the sport right now. Obviously wasn't even on tour for the majority of last year, but has been really good when she has been out there. And one of my bold takes before the season was that she would finish the year outside the top three. I just don't see her as that level of talent compared to an Osaka or a... Andreescu, or even some other players who maybe can't put it together consistently, but like a Muguruza, I would say, is more naturally gifted than Ash Barty. But I have to ask now, will she even be passed as number one this year? Because she's 27-5 and five since the start of 2020. Just so consistent, and her lead is significant. She's 1,200 points ahead of Osaka. She's 2,200 points ahead of Halep, and I do actually think she'll be passed. I think Osaka is too dialed in right now, and she lost to Miami, but was so phenomenal before then at the Australian. I think that she will get her. She's going to have to put it together across all the surfaces, and that's where Barty definitely has an advantage. But, man, is she consistent as far as Barty goes. And I guess I would have to ask, does she have a case for best player in the world? Because you hold the number one ranking for long enough, and you have to enter that conversation. Maybe, I would say. It doesn't feel like it. But she avoids bad losses for the most part. She can dominate on clay and hard, and we'll see about grass, but no question about clay. Obviously, that's where her lone Grand Slam title has come at this point at the French. And you compare that to Osaka, who still hasn't shown that she can regularly win on clay or grass, and I definitely think it's coming on grass, but we haven't seen it. There's a case, maybe, that she is the real best player in the world. But talent-wise, I don't think so. With Osaka having won the last two slams, I don't think so. And Osaka has even more room for growth, which is crazy. Right now, Barty is playing phenomenally. She deserves credit. I don't think that she's actually the best player in the world, though. Okay, 
So that kind of concludes our look back on Miami. Honestly, I touched on some of the storylines that were interesting from early in the tournament. In last week's show, I talked about Corda having a good run. I talked about a few of the young guys playing really well there, but I don't want to double dip with all that. So now we're going to talk about what to look for in the clay swing because it's starting this week, as I mentioned, with a few 250s, and I'll talk about those at the conclusion of this week. Not going to do a full preview for any of those because they're really not that significant, but it is good to get some of those young guys out there and see how they're faring and It's not always all about the top guys, obviously, as we know, but it is often about the young guys here on down the line, and that's the first thing I want to look for, is how do the young guys fare? Because we have, obviously, now so many guys who are more established than they were when it was clay season last year. Musetti, who actually made himself known at Rome last year, just a great clay quarter, a guy who I think projects so well there, is so gifted, and... I definitely like his chances to make a little bit more noise this time around. He is in one of the 250s this week, and we'll see how he does there. But I can't wait to see him as his game continues to develop and is probably more developed than it was last year where he made so much noise again. That's going to be awesome. Hopefully in some more main draws, hopefully in the French and all that. I would say he's pretty much a lock to be in the French, actually, considering his ranking at this point. And then you have his fellow countrymen, his fellow Italian, and Yannick Sinner, who we've talked about in this episode already, of course. Insane talent. 10-7 and on clay in his career, and I don't know how his game really projects to clay. Now, obviously, he was great at the French last year, getting to the quarters where he was mowed down by Rafa, but hey, who wasn't? And he actually put up a better fight than, believe it or not, Novak Djokovic, which is pretty insane. And so I want to see, when we're talking about a guy being an all-court player dominant, regardless of surface, the guys who really sit at the top of this sport as all-timers, does he have the potential to be that? Absolutely, but he is also... A guy who likes to strike the ball very cleanly, who's going to attack, who's going to take some balls on the rise even. And so it's interesting to see how that really develops on clay. Obviously, we've seen him there before, but I think he's a better player now than he's ever been. And so I want to see how he fares there this time around. Corda, another guy who had a really strong French last year, but has gotten better since then. 3-1 and one in his clay court career. That is only from the French Open, though, but obviously has been awesome this season. I talked about it plenty last episode. I think he's the most talented young American I have ever seen. Now, I am a young man, but there haven't been many great ones, and he is really, really gifted, so I want to see how he does. And then another guy who is young, not in the same category as far as being wet behind the ears as those guys, but Denis Shapovalov, only 17-14 and 14 on clay in his career. Obviously, not the best surface for him stylistically as a guy who is going to attack for the most part, who's going to hit some of those clean, flatter balls occasionally. Can he take it up a notch? That's what we're trying to see from him as well. And I'll throw in one real young guy for you too in Holger Rune, another favorite here on Down the Line just because he's so young and there is so much hope. But at 17, we just saw him go down 7-6 in the third to Sun Wukwan. Nothing wrong with that. A very respectable player. Hopefully, though, he can get a wild card into a 1,000 or maybe a French. I just want to see him in something other than 1-250 that he gets into and loses first round because he is now making that adjustment from number one ITF junior to full-time player on tour, and it seems like Clay is maybe going to be a surface. Maybe he'll be a guy who's really good regardless of surface, but I just want to see what he has in the tool bag a little bit more. And then on the women's side, I think we still have a lot to look forward to with Andreescu because I think she should be great on Clay. But we haven't seen that much of her on clay, especially after she reached this peak as a player with obviously her run down the stretch on hard in 2019. I think, again, that because of her variety of pace, because of her all-court ability, she should be really good on clay, but she only won one match there at the French back in 2019. That was her only win on the surface, and we haven't seen her on clay since then. So a lot to be determined with her that will be pivotal to really gauging 
where does she rank among the world's top, top players this year? So I'm pumped for all of that. And something else I'm looking for is just which established stars on both the men's and the women's side who have been so great on hard, not so great on clay can take it up a notch. And I'm specifically looking at two people. I'm looking at, as I touched on earlier, Naomi Osaka, who still hasn't made it past the third round at the French, who hasn't made a semi at one of the Clay Court Masters 1000s. Can she make a push for world number one by really playing well here? Because it's going to be tough for her to do it, only racking up real points on hard. And again, we'll see how she looks at Wimbledon this year. She hasn't been great there historically, but she's also probably the best she's ever been. But she's still so young. She still has so much room for growth, but she hasn't really looked comfortable on clay previously. And so if she can make a little bit of noise there, that would be huge for her confidence, for her resume as an all-around player, and ultimately for her case for number one. And similar story with the Neil Medvedev on the men's side, obviously not the same caliber of player, but he has 680 points to defend on the clay court swing. That's not a tiny number, but it's not a huge number either. And Lost first round of the French, lost first round in two of the three 1000s, so a lot of opportunity to gain points there. If he can just be more consistent, obviously is the antithesis of a traditional clay quarter as a guy who's going to hit the ball so flat, but with his movement, with his ability to vary pace, I don't know. We'll see if maybe he can figure out how to win some stuff there. Particularly, I would look at maybe Madrid, where the clay's a little bit faster. He played well at Barcelona last time around there, making the final. So... We shall see out of him, but that's definitely something that I'm looking for and will determine his ceiling as a player because even though he's 24, we haven't seen very much of Medvedev at all on clay when he's been at his best. We haven't seen any really, arguably, because he made his run late 2019 like Andreescu after the clay court swing. So one last guy, I do want to see more of Andre Rublev because he was good on clay last year, no question, won a title there. He was really good across the board on on any surface last year. He was so fantastic, but the majority of it has obviously been on hard. That is what his game is best suited for. Now he can hit those heavier tops from dolls. He does move well. He can grind out points. All these things that make you think he should be at least a good clay quarter. I just want to see him build on it. Another guy who had his search to the top and we haven't seen a full clay court swing with him at that level. So all three of those players I am absolutely looking for. And there's a lot to be learned about them, I think, in this stretch. Another guy who I'm going to be looking for. Dominic Team. obviously, you may not think has very much to prove on clay. Now, obviously, doesn't have that French Open title, but has made two finals there, five straight quarters, four semis, but he's never won a Masters 1000 on clay. His only Masters 1000 title was at Indian Wells, so I'm obviously looking at, can he do that? Now, he took off Miami, saying he just wanted to get rested and situated for the clay court swing. That's great. Hopefully, it pays off with some big results because previously, he's been that grinder playing 25, 26 tournaments. If he wants to take a couple off to better his chances here, I'm all for that. I just want to see him actually do it, and it's crazy to me that he hasn't broken through at any of them. I would think he has a puncher's chance at the very least at each and every one of them, though, and should certainly be among the top three favorites. But the last guy who would maybe make a push for one of those spots, probably not a very strong push in my opinion, but got to shout him out nonetheless, Roger Federer, who of course will hopefully be playing in at least a couple of these tournaments. And what I'm looking for is just how does he look? What level is he at? Because we've only seen two matches of him and then he took the rest of that early hardcourt swing off and Clay has not been his top priority as of late. He's been very willing to take off not just the 1000s where we haven't seen him very much over the past half decade, but obviously the French Open as well. But this year, you have to think it will matter at least for showing he's healthy, for finding his rhythm. And it's very different from grass, of course. But I would think when he's more than a year out without real competition, any competition is better than specific practicing on grass, which is normally what he leans on a little bit and resting the body there. So 
Maybe we see him at two of the 1,000s in the French. I don't know. Any of that would be great in my opinion. I just want to see him out there, and that's something I'm fascinated for because, yeah, he looked good in his first tournament back. Obviously, lost second round, but I thought his level looked good. But what does it look like on clay where he's not as comfortable historically? Obviously, still a great player, but he's not fed on hard or grass when he's on clay. And just is he healthy? Can he sustain a run? Is he in the proper physical condition? All of that is very intriguing to me and something I will absolutely be looking for. And the clay court swing is just going to be a bunch of fun. So we'll talk about some of the smaller tournaments as they conclude next week. And then we will get into the good stuff. Kicking things off with Monte Carlo and then we get into Barcelona. And then a couple weeks after that, Madrid and Rome. It is going to be a jam-packed clay court season. And hopefully, considering that basically all the world's top players said, I need a little time off before the clay court swing. Djokovic, team, Federer, Nadal. We should see them at their best, mentally sharp. And I don't know, maybe the world will even be a little more open. Maybe they won't have to exist in as strict of bubbles as the vaccine continues to get distributed throughout the world. I'm not going to say I know the exact status of it in Monaco or in Spain or whatever have you, but Hopefully there's some progress there and hopefully life just gets easier on tour for all of these guys and we can see some really good tennis a little bit better than what we saw on Miami. Now, I can't complain about having a complete wild card every once in a while where we just see Urkosh winning. That's something the sport has been missing for a long time, but I am a fiend for seeing the best players at their best and so it always bums me out when we don't have the big three and team as well, even if we're going to have a crazy chaotic fun tournament, which we did have, so I'm not complaining Definitely not complaining about Hakash winning. That was awesome. But I'm excited to see these stables at the top of the sport back and hopefully at their best. So with that, as always, I have been Carson Brabber. This was Down the Line. Hope you enjoyed. <laughs>